0: your source of all things IFRS. Technical accounting matters, business issues and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Dave Alters. In today's episode we're going to talk about negative interest rates and how to account for them across the IFRS world. I'm joined by two returning guests Sandra Thompson who leads our global financial instruments team and Tony DeBell who leads our global team for revenue liabilities and other issues. So Sandra, Can you explain what negative interest rates are and why we're talking about
1: them? Yeah, thanks, Dave. So first, what do we mean by negative interest rates? Well, I think the easiest way to think about this is think of a a customer that places money on deposit with a bank, as I'm sure a number of us do. Generally, you'd expect that the bank would pay back the deposit, but with interest, and that interest would increase the amount that's paid back, if you like, positive interest. However, in certain circumstances, the interest rate can be negative, so it actually reduces the amount that's paid to the customer when they take their deposit out. Um, Why are we talking about it now? Well, it's actually not a new phenomenon. However, we are seeing negative interest rates in perhaps more of the world than half of the world. So in particular, we have negative interest rates in the Eurozone, in Japan, in Switzerland, and in parts of the Nordics. And some of those rates are negative for quite long periods as well. So not only short-term rates, but some quite long-term rates are negative. And as I hope we're going to explain in the next few minutes, they can have a range of accounting impacts. And we're particularly going to focus on employee benefits, financial instruments, some other standards, and then come back and think a bit about how you might present negative interest rates. So, Tony, can I pass over you to kick off? What about employee benefits?
2: Yeah, so employee benefits is an area where we do have specific guidance in the standard that addresses the implications of negative interest rates. So, IS-19 that deals with employee benefits requires that the liability is discounted using the yield on high-quality corporate bonds, whether it's a deep market, Uh, And if there isn't a deep market, discounted using the yield on government bonds of an appropriate duration. And so there is nothing there that says, well, if those yields are negative, you can ignore the negative and end up with a flaw. So the conclusion is you have to use the the yield on those bonds, uh, even if that yield is negative. And so the implications of that, if you think first perhaps in the context of a pension liability, there are typically two approaches to determining the discount rate for a pension liability. Many companies use a weighted average discount rate and if that's what the companies are doing then the weighted average has to take into account the periods for which there are negative yields. Alternatively a company might choose to discount the cash flows in each year using the yield that is indicated by the yield curve for that period and again you can't ignore the negative yields, if there is a negative yield at a particular point on the curve. So for pension benefits, longer-term employee benefits, negative rates have to be factored into the calculation. Uh, For shorter-term benefits, where typically you you might just look at uh, a relatively short-term bond yield or government bond yield, the same logic applies. If for the term of the employee benefit there is a negative yield, then that is used to determine the discount rate, and that obviously plays into the measurement of of the liability. Uh, So that's the area where we do have specific guidance in in, in employee benefits. Uh, I think, Sandra, we have something explicit in the financial instruments guidance as well.
1: Yeah, thanks, Tony. Um, And I think we'll think about this in three bits. So let's talk about an entity that holds a financial asset, something like a bond, and that the interest rate being paid on that bond has become negative. I think the first question is, can that bond still be at amortised cost or fair value OCI? So can it meet the solely payments of principal and interest test? And the reason you might ask that question is because interest under IFRS 9 is defined as compensation for the time value of money, credit and other lending risks. Now, compensation implies that the entity getting the compensation receives something positive. In this case, the interest is negative. So does that mean you don't meet the SPPI test? Now IFRS 9 very helpfully has some very clear specific guidance that says no interest can be negative, and the bond in my example can still meet the SPPI test, so can be at amortised cost or fair value OCI. And in particular, the way that IFRS 9 thinks about it is saying that that interest is composed of two bits. So there is a positive compensation for the time value of money and then there's a kind of fee that the bank charges for taking that deposit and holding the depositors money and that can be negative and that can be bigger than the the positive time value of money so yes that can still meet SPPI so far so good i think the next question is having measured your assets at amortized cost or fair value oci ifrs 9 then requires expected credit losses so an impairment on those 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 assets and how do negative interest rates feel Feed into the calculation of the expected credit loss. And you've got two things to think about here. The way expected credit loss works, as its name suggests, is the expected loss the entity would have if the um, counterparty defaults. Now, suppose in our bond the counterparty defaults, then how much does the holder expect to lose? Well, that will depend on how much they can recover in that circumstance. So if you think about a case where, say, the bond has got a principal of 100, but there is some negative interest that's been, say, accrued but unpaid, let's say, of minus 2, the key question is, well, does the bond holder have the right to 100 or 98? And if they only have the right to 98, so if you like, the bond's principal less the negative interest, then that will mean that's the most they could lose and that will result in a smaller ECL. On the other hand, having worked out the loss given default, um, and the likelihood of default, you then need to discount and you discount using the effective interest rate through to when the default's expected to happen. And in doing that, you're using the same EIR as you did for the SPPI test so that could be a negative number. So you could be discounting at a negative number, which will increase the ECL. So so two impacts there on the impairment calculation. And then the third area is hedge accounting. I can't talk about financial instruments without veering into hedge accounting at some point. And here again, perhaps an example will help. So if we have an entity that either holds or has issued some floating rate instruments, an instrument that's, that's linked to LIBOR, and hedge that with an interest rate swap, also with a variable LIBOR leg and a fixed leg, then the question is how do negative interest rates impact that hedge and here the answer is it depends some instruments have an interest rate that's flawed at zero so they actually under the contractual terms can't go negative so if you're in a situation where neither the debt nor the swap has a flaw they can both go negative then that's still a perfectly effective hedge in just the same way, just that both rates have gone negative. Previously, they were both positive. You won't have an issue there. On the other hand, where you have a situation where one instrument is flawed at zero, so maybe the interest rate swap is flawed at zero, but the other, say, the the debt instrument is not, then clearly when interest rates become negative, there's a mismatch because one has gone negative and the other has stopped at zero. And that, at the very least, will cause hedging effectiveness because your hedge is no longer perfectly effective, and could cause hedge accounting to, to cease to, to work, so to have to fail, particularly if that's a, a fairly long-term phenomenon. And then, of course, the third case is where both instruments are flawed at zero. And I think there you have to really say, is it still appropriate to carry on hedge accounting? Because when the interest rate goes negative, they both essentially become zero rate. Um, so therefore, there is no cash flow variability to hedge. They've both fixed at zero. Again, that might depend on on how long term the, the negative rates are expected to be. So plenty to think about in the financial instrument space. Tony, what about other standards? So I
2: think the thing with other standards is that you need to look at the specific guidance in the standards to determine what, if anything, it requires in connection with the discount rate. Uh, and to give you a couple of examples, um, you think about um, IFRS 15 and significant financing component in the context of a revenue transaction. IFRS 15 says that um, uh, one of the things that you would do is consider the rate that would apply to a separate financing transaction between the entity and its customer. Uh, and in that case, I think if that um, if that rate was negative, then IFRS 15 suggests that you would apply the negative rate, the, the but you wouldn't floor it at zero. Um, Similarly, if you look at IFRS 2, there's a piece in IFRS 2 that says you need to use a risk-free rate and says you might refer to zero coupon government bond to determine a risk-free rate. Uh, And again, if that is negative, there's nothing in IFRS 2 to suggest that uh, in the context of the share-based payment calculations, you should be floored at zero. So if there is some specific guidance, then I think you would look at the standards and you would consider how that guidance applies. Possibly the standard that is more difficult than some of the others is the provision standard, IS37. Uh, And the reason that you might think that IS37 points you in different directions is that um, it does say you start off thinking about a risk-free rate, but you might adjust it for the risk in the cash flows. But IS37 also says that uh, near-term cash flows are more onerous than longer-term cash flows. An IS-37 is is not entirely clear whether it's a fulfilment model or a settlement model, which again might give you different signals. So I think in the context of IS-37, it is important to think about the words in the standard and think about uh, the implications of those words for whether or not the discount rate is flawed at zero. Uh, And I think I'm I'm, I'm not going to talk through all of the other standards where uh, a a discount rate is is needed, but just to emphasize that the key step is to look at the guidance that exists in the standard uh, and determine whether that pushes you towards one answer or another. I think that's probably about it in terms of the guidance around how a negative interest rate might apply. But one of the other things we need to think about is presentation, which is something that Sandra will pick up.
1: Yeah, thanks, Tony. And I think this issue most often arises for a bank. Um, Most banks would report interest revenue or interest income as the top line of their income statement. Um, And there's a particular question about what you do when that's a negative number. And in particular, given revenue is defined in terms of a gross inflow of benefits, what do you do given negative interest is clearly an outflow and not an inflow. Now, I think this was very helpfully addressed by the IFRIC that said that doesn't meet the definition of revenue, because essentially it goes in the wrong direction. It's an outflow, not an inflow. Um, So therefore, you can't book negative interest in the interest revenue or interest income line. That's a top line of your income statement. Of course, that then raises the question, well, if I can't do that, what can you do? And I think if you think about a bank's income statement, the top two lines are normally interest income, interest expense, coming down to net interest margin, and you could certainly report it separately within net interest margin. So you could have interest income, interest expense, negative interest income, all coming down to net interest margin. Um, That would be one possibility. You could probably also report it further down the income statement in a, a separate line item of his own or some other kind of expense. So none of that's precluded. So apart from the fact you couldn't put it in the top line as interest revenue, there's probably a variety of things you could do. And I think given that, it's very important to explain where the amount's material, what the entity has chosen to do, and to make sure the number is is clearly either displayed on the face of the income statement or disclosed in the notes Um, And obviously when there's a degree of judgment, it's very helpful to the reader to know what judgment the entity has made and what policy it's chosen. So I think that's most things on on presentation. Um, It sometimes crops up for corporates as well, who don't have interest revenue as the top line of their income statement. And again, there's no direct guidance, so there is a variety of possible suitable presentations. One might be somewhere within net finance cost, either disclosed or perhaps reported separately, if it's a sufficiently material number or some other kind of expense could also be appropriate. But the same message applies about being clear to the reader of the accounts what you've done and how it's been presented.
0: We're running out of time, I'm afraid, but before we finish, what's the key message people should remember?
1: Yeah,
2: thanks, Dave. That's a good question. Maybe I can take that to just wrap it up. I, th- I think the important thing to stress here is is that you need to look at the specific guidance in each of the standards where interest rates are used to determine discount rates. Uh, I don't think we can say there is a one-size-fits-all answer, and there's a range of things that you need to think about. I think you'd start by saying, well, what does the standard say about discount rates? Is it specific in the way that the Employee Benefits Standard is? Is it perhaps a little bit less specific, the way the provision standard is? Uh, And is there guidance in one of the standards that, that, that perhaps goes beyond specifically what you might use the discount rate for, and into other areas like uh, Sandra talked about in connection with expected credit losses and hedging. So I think the key message is think about what the standards say.
1: Yeah, I think if I was to pick up one thing, it would be having done that, think about how you present it and be very clear on what you've done. As we said, there is a degree of judgment, um, so a number of policies could be acceptable, but clearly tell the reader what you've done. Yep, I agree with that.
0: So that's all we have time for today. Please join us again next time. In the meantime, if you need accounting uh, uh, advice, uh, have a look on PwC Inform uh, or indeed pwc.com forward slash IFRS. Uh, and uh, happy accounting!
1: The preceding programme was brought to you by Price Waterhouse Coopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisers.